Another episode of the New York Comedy Club podcast brought to you by Paper House Network. I am your host, Nick Angelo, joined, as always, by E. Scott Linder and Emilio Savone. And a little sad news in the comedy world, the owner of the Comic Strip Live, Richie Tinkin, passed away. And I know that 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 venue means a lot to us here at the New York Comedy Club. So I kind of want to throw to you guys to kind of tell your side of the history that we have with the comic strip and Richie himself. Emilio, I know you have a, a lot to say. Yeah, uh, you know, the comic strip was uh, our introduction in- introduction to the comedy world. Um, you know, Scott, Scott, you know, the history of us was we were the promoters of the club. We ran their street team marketing for many, many, many years. I mean, Scott was there. Uh, Scott, how much longer were you actually there? Before me, like seven seven years. Haha. No, no, seriously, at the strip, you just uh, started I mean, the the promotion there, right? Yeah, we were at the pro- we we're. I was at the strip. Um, I think two years before you came along. Really, you guys were promoting the strip for two years prior to that. I started at the strip. I was always at the strip. But I thought you were just starting a new team, and then I get. I mean, I, I was along. I was starting a new team, but before doing that, I was promoting the strip. Before doing my own team. Ah, who was the head guy then over there? Emerson? Yeah, Emerson and um, this other guy who like oh, went crazy. Mark? Yeah, Mark oh, okay. and went and moved to Florida. Um, but yeah, I started my my first introduction to the world of comedy in general was the comic strip. How old were you? Um, let's see. It was uh, 2003, I think. 2004. Wow, so you were like 22, 23. Something like that, yeah. And then I came, so I wasn't that much, I was about a year then, yeah, a year, year and a half, two years behind you. Um, Yeah, so, you know, Scott and I, you know, well, Scott was there before me, and then, you know, Scott had the opportunity to run a, a team there, then I came on board, and, and then we kind of gelled and did our stuff. So, you know, the comic strip for, for us is a, a very significant part of not just our comedy lives, but of our lives. Um, You know, I met my wife there, Um, you know, Ankara was a hostess there and, and, and Scott met Heather there and she worked with us and promoted, um, with us. And, and, you know, Richie, um, was, was the last of the original three owners and, you know, and, and really there was kind of four. I mean, there were three real owners. It was Bob Wax, John McGowan and Richie. And then, you know, Lucian Hold, who was the booker, but, you know, was highly regarded as really kind of the, you know, a big face of that whole thing. Cause he was the booker. So, you know, hearing of Richie's passing was 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 uh, was tough because I, I feel like um, he was one of the last of that kind of generation of old of owners. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's crazy to say that of the original owners of that of that brand, Richie was kind of the main one. Um, you know, he managed Eddie Murphy and he managed Adam Sandler. I mean, you know, Scott and I, Scott and I always said that you know they would have to pry that place away from Richie um you know he, he would just never that like that's just like where he his home that's where he lives like that really was his baby so we really got a pretty uh, you know a first uh, a first look you know a front row seat if you will to the ins and outs of that venue for you know over a decade um when we were there um and it served as very educational for me you know my first experience of really being around a comedy club owner um, to that capacity really was Richie. I mean, I guess John McGowan, we dealt with 
you know, before Richie, we, you know, because Richie was going through some health stuff. So John was kind of running the place. And then Richie came back and then Bob Wax came back. But I think Richie definitely was different than the other owners in that you can tell that he was very, very um, involved and interested and really passionate about the um, about the craft itself, about comedy, you know, the talent. Um, you know, and anyone who knows Richie will tell you, you know, he would pull you into his office and tell you stories of Eddie Murphy and, you know, all these other, you know, stories of George Wallace and Seinfeld, usually about Eddie. But um, but I, I think his passing, it definitely demands some reflection, you know? Yeah, I mean, I remember store, I remember sitting in the back of his car and we've had a lot of meetings um, in the back of people's cars. Uh, that's kind of a, that's kind of a thing, you know? Um, but I remember having meetings in the back of his car and yeah, him telling us stories, um, of Eddie Murphy. And I mean, there's so much history in that place. And yeah, I mean, I think what you said is right, Emilio, like it, it deserves reflection, you know, cause it's definitely for us, Emilio, like, you know, we, we cut our teeth at the comic strip and we were there for a long time. Um, I mean, what, close to 10 years. I mean, I was there for nine, and that means you would have been there for, you know, around 11. Yeah, I mean, that's a long time, you know, and we spent, I mean, most of my time at the Strip was spent uh, there in the morning, actually. I would get there at like 8.30 in the morning and set up everything. I mean, to give it a little history, you know, Emilio and I ran the marketing street team for the Strip for a long time. You know, when we when we were there, at first it was John McGowan. John McGowan was the main guy that we were dealing with. Um, but we kind of did our own thing. You know, we had keys to the club. We were in there every single morning. We ran our meetings there. We had comics that would come in the morning time and practice material for our street team. I mean, at the height of the street team, which was like, what, 2009, 2008, 2009? Uh, it's between 2000 and like nine and 2011 maybe 2008 2011 those were just that was when we were really just yeah i mean we would have fire. 30 we, we would have 30 <laughs> 40 people in there in at 9 a.m chanting and, and ranting about you know going out and selling tickets for the comic strip and you know it, it was the best comedy club in the city and you know at that time you know the strip i mean the strip is it's, it's been around for a really really long time and if you go if you go there there are pictures of 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 eddie murphy on stage and robin williams and jerry seinfeld and just really like all the classics the heyday of comedy that was the place to be yeah you know i, I always like to tell people when i was telling them in times square the comic strip to comedy is what cbgb's was to punk you know, like that was, if you're a music fan, you got to go check out CBGB's where if you're a comedy fan, you got to go check out the comic strip. You walk in there and it's like a museum of comedy with all the pictures on the wall and just the, the rich history of that place was awesome. And I took that for granted. I used, I mean, I showed up there every morning and got ready to go out and sell tickets, did our Wolf of Wall Street pre-show kind of ritual, got us all fired up to go sell. And then, you know... You, you, you just sit in that room and you go and tell complete strangers like, yeah, this place is awesome. You ever hear of this? Co you ever hear of Robin Williams? Do you ever hear of Eddie Murphy? Yep. got their start here. And like, it was just something that was, it was awesome. It was awesome to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, just to kind of let people know why we, we have such a, an affection for that place too. It's, you know, like Scott said, man, like we had the keys to that place and we would go in there in the morning time when no one was there. And, we really felt ownership, you know, uh, over everything that we were doing there. I mean, to us, the comic strip was our venue, you know, back then. Um, 
And, you know, we had the keys. We we had access to the place. J.R. Rabbits and the whole team there really kind of entrusted us to kind of do what we do. And, um, and you know, when you are trying to grow a company, or, or especially in your early to mid-20s in New York City, and, um, and really not try to grow a company, you know, I mean, again, I mean, I think our view at the time, I mean, I was still thinking about wanting to be an actor and, you know, Scott, you know, has still continued on with music, but like, you know, everyone that we were hiring, I mean, no one was like trying to be a comedy promoter. It was all people who like were either college students or actors, musicians, they needed some part-time work, they needed to make money and, and they just needed to be part of something. A lot of the people that we had, and this was a straight up commission job, you know, you didn't make money unless you actually sold tickets. And we would have people that worked with us that would literally sell nothing. They would make no money. But they would keep coming back because a lot of the people that worked with us were, you know, new to the city. Um, you know, they just they felt like a, it was a home for them. We created like a, an environment of like a family environment. We they would, could have free coffee, free coffee. We would do fun games in the morning. It, it just it was it was one of those places where we were able to take something that most people would think was an awful awful job. And really kind of create this kind of familiarity and home for a lot of uh, a lot of strays, if you will. Well, I, well, speaking as one of those strays, I think another one of the benefits of that job, because there was a lot of shitty parts of that job, but one of the cool benefits was- For you, because you couldn't sell. I was okay. I didn't have that killer instinct. Of you were not okay. You're terrible. All right. <laughs> Yeah. Either you sell or you don't. Because I There's do, no in between. You do, You're going to get me going now. You make six sales a day. That's not great, but it's not zero. Six a day, Nick? Yeah. You did not do six a day. Yeah. Look up the numbers. I wasn't pulling. Oh, we, we will, my friend. Yeah. We have them. We have the numbers. Uh, yeah. You really, want us, you really want us to pull up the numbers? We will. Yeah. We'll look them up. I want you to look them up. Six a but day. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make. Can you imagine if we look back and it's like nine a day and we yeah. had it all wrong and Nick yeah. is some kind of sales genius? Yeah, I am. I mean, when, when do I got to... Yeah, if to... you were a sales genius, you wouldn't be wearing a bowling pin and promoting for Bullmore Lanes. That was the most money you jerks ever made because of me, so oh. you're welcome. Oh, eh. I wouldn't say that. I would definitely wouldn't say that. At the time? Eh, maybe. Okay. Sure. Whatever you want to tell yourself. <laughs> I would say to sleep at night, but you don't sleep at night. Yeah, it's also true. Um, well, what I was trying to say before Scott had to correct me is that one of the cool benefits of working street team for that club is that we got to go to the show for free and i remember we were me and another guy were up there on a friday night or saturday night upper east side trying to sell some extra tickets or promote whatever bar across the street we're up there and all of a sudden i get a text from emilio that says Chappelle's at the strip stop what you're doing and go like emilio's telling us to stop working and go to the strip we walk in we're like can we go see dave and they're like Oh, you guys are part of the street team, right? Yeah, yeah, come on in. And we sat in the very back. And I watched Dave Chappelle basically bomb for an hour. And it was like the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. yeah it was amazing. But that was one of the benefits of being able to work at such a legendary club. Like you got to see things like that as, as a part of it. And it's just that family atmosphere and that just, you know, it was awesome. It was it was a really cool place. And um, yeah, it's a... Yeah, and, and you know, and we we all had to fight the elements. So, like, you go out to a Times Square, you go to college campuses, and there's other people and other things selling stuff. And so, I mean, our mentality was always, at least back then, it was it was a you know it was a warlike mentality. Uh, we went out there, and our goal was to 
to promote that place and get people in there like our lives dependent on it. And we approach everything as life and death. So clearly when you have that kind of approach and you put that much of your blood and sweat and just so much equity um, into what you're doing, um, it's impossible not to feel the way we feel about a place like the comic strip. You're just going to feel that way. So, and, and again, like, you know, it was cool to be around, you know, guys like Richie and Bob and, and John and really Richie though, especially like, you know, I, I know like, and again, I'm not going to speak for Scott. I know Scott had a really close relationship with John and I don't think we necessarily had like this crazy close relationship with Richie. In fact, we were probably closer. We were closer with, like J.R. Rabbits and stuff, but just to have, to just be in a conversation and just to have access to someone with, with that kind of just experience and knowledge and just, just really being like a, a living legend was very cool. And, and getting just to observe and watch how he was perceived when he would walk into the club and watch how comics would react to him, how he would react to comics, how he would sit in and watch um, the comedy and, and really... And, and, you know, Richie never really seemed to micromanage. He always just kind of let his staff do what they do. Um, you know, that stuff seeps into your your mind, and it definitely served as kind of a, uh, a benchmark for me, at least, in terms of when we got to open our club. You know, I, I feel like we, Scott and I, were very lucky to have two very, very different styles, I think, of, of watching owners work. One is, you know, the comic strip and Richie and those guys. Another is, is Al, you know, Al Martin. Um, you know, I think they both approach things differently, but both are very successful at what they do. And, um, and yeah, I mean, hearing of his passing, it, it's tough because, um, uh, because you, you do wonder, you know, what, what, and again, it's not our place to say what's in store for them, but you can't help but look at yourself and say, you know, Hey, you know, at some point we're all going to get older and maybe at some point, you know, comedy does tend to be a young person's business. And, and where are we going to be, you know, when we're at that age and, and not, it's not about us, but you, you can't help but think of stuff like that. But I, I definitely wanted to talk about the comic strip and talk about Richie and, and talk about that legacy because, you know, he opened up, they opened up the comic strip at a time where the improv was here and catch a rising star was here. And when they opened up, I mean, I felt like they gave way to a whole new breed of comics, you know, the Eddie Murphy's, you know, the Paul Reiser's, the George Wallace's. I mean, that was like, the, the 80s was, you know, everyone says boom. That was like the first huge, huge boom. Um, and I think that club back then would have been considered kind of an outlier club or a disruptor. I'm sure like the institutions of the improvs and catch probably wasn't thrilled that there was a new, a new player in town that was developing and finding and nurturing the likes of the Eddie Murphys. And then you know, again, at that time, were there a lot of club owners? I have no idea that were managing comics. The fact that Richie founded this talent in Eddie was nurturing him, and Eddie had the trust in him to for him to want to manage him is pretty cool. You know? Yeah, I mean, just a, a testament to the the strip itself is you watch any comedy documentary, there is a really good chance that the strip will be brought up. At some point, someone's going to say, "Oh yeah, we were there at the strip, or we used to. We talked. Oh, we were performing at the strip. And one night, I said this. I was talking to so and so at the strip. Like that's just. It's a. It's a comedy institution. It's a legendary place. 
that like you just got done saying, Amelia, a lot of, you know, the Eddie Murphy story, of course, but you know, there's, there, it's not, this isn't, this isn't one of these things that we would kind of embellish in Times Square to get someone to buy a ticket. You know, these, these stories are real in the fact that Chris Rock got, got paid in stage time. He bust tables and he got paid to five minutes on stage. That's how Chris Rock got his start. You know, that's uh, Jerry Seinfeld played on the comic strip softball team. You know, this is one of those places that were just an iconic venue for stand-up comedy. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, hearing of Richie's passing was tough, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of people know our history there, and, you know, I feel like our blood really runs with the comic strip. Like, the comic strip is, is to me, like the benchmark of what a comedy club should be. You know, nurturing new talent, just a great place to hang out and, you know, respecting new talent and old. And, you know, um, a lot of people know, like, you know, the relationship we had with the strip was sometimes great and sometimes not so great, you know. And it was a sort of um, conflicted relationship that we had with the comic strip in general based on who was running the place. And so, you know, as we talk about this stuff, it's hard to to um uh broach those topics you know i mean we when i was there i was there when john mcgowan was there you know i didn't even know who richie was at the beginning um and then richie came back and was running the show and we had a bunch of meetings with richie and richie was great but you know we we did part ways with the comic strip um because of, of of certain reasons which we don't need to get into but there was for me regardless of of whatever business was happening with us in the strip, it's still a place that is really important. And I think, you know, and I think Richie has a place in the, in the comedy legends for what he did, you know, and needs to be respected in that manner. Because like, you know, I think about how long he was doing, how long he was doing this. What, how long was he doing it? 40 years? God, since 1975. You know, I mean, and then I think about myself and Emilio and I, like, you know, how long have we owned a club? I mean, we've been promoting, you know, we've been involved in the comedy for a long time, but we've only owned a club for six years. Right, Emilio? Six years, yeah. Uh, and one of those years we've been closed. I know. <laughs> because of the pandemic. You know, so I think 40 years from now, you know, where will my head be? Where What's going to be happening at our clubs? And what is that going to look like? You know, and and um, you got to give respect to anybody in any industry, but particularly in an industry like comedy that can last that long and still be um, there physically at the club watching comedians, you know? Um, so there, there's, I, I think that that due respect needs to happen, you know? And what it's, it's, I don't know. It's almost a shame, you know, like I just, I just, we just love that club so much. And I just want to make, you know, like what's going to happen to that club now? You know, we don't know. I mean, the, the the fate of the comic strip was very up in the air before the pandemic and then the pandemic hit um and we were all closed right and you know when clubs open back up richie's not here anymore you yeah. know and so what happens to the comic strip you know to, and and um for me it seems like a shame for it to disappear you know but is that the reality we're facing here? Well, I, I mean, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? And, and listen, I think I think for anyone who is listening, 
And, you know, if someone from the comic strip listening, you know, I, I don't want anyone to think that, oh, another comedy club should not be commenting on, you know, the business of another one. But it is different. Again, like Scott said, like that was our that was our school of comedy for many, many years. Um, we learned a lot of what to do working there. And we, we also learned of things of maybe not to do either. I mean, with under any. Whenever you're learning anything, you're going to look at things you want to, you know, do take away. And some of it is good stuff. Some of it's bad stuff. But we filled the room. We filled that room. We filled that room. For, and, and for, for, for the better part, I mean, for 10 years, we filled that room to the brim. And we did it with our hearts on our sleeves. I mean, we, 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 were, we would literally tell people to not go to a certain, you know, why go to the Empire State Building? Why, you know, we were ambassadors of comedy and, and, and ambassadors of the strip. Um, but you know, I think one thing about Richie, um, is that's really kind of, you know, what kind of cool is that I think he, he in many ways was a draw. Like I, I know for a fact, you know, a lot of comics would go there because Richie would be there, you know, and that kind of speaks to your point, Scott, like, look, they have look like any organization you have people. I mean, Richie wasn't the GM there. I, I don't know how involved he was in day to day, but I can tell you that knowing that as a young comic, you know, that you could go to a place and get validation from someone who has seen so much that has a lot of equity. And for the older comics, you know, I know Larry David would pop in there from time to time and Amy Schumer would stop in and so many people would still go into the strip. Seinfeld did his special. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is directly tied to the fact that Richie was there. You know, he, he is, he is synonymous with the comic strip live. Um, and, you know, and again, like I, and I, I, I think like what Scott said, I think, you know, 30, 40 years from now, you know, what's it going to look like for us? What's going to look like for any club? You know, you take a club like the Comedy Cellar. I think the Comedy Cellar is, was in a very, is a, is, was in a very, very unique position to have someone like Gnome, who was son of, you know, of, of the original owner, Manny, who is incredibly smart and was able to build upon what his dad did and take the seller into a whole new place of where it is now. And, and, you know, I don't have children, you know, Scott's got two kids. So, you know, when we're older, I, I, I do think about like, you know, will we one day maybe be, you know, I don't know what, what will happen? You know, what's, what's the exit strategy? You know, and that, not that we're thinking about that now, but so you just, and then, you know, what, what makes me happy is to see a lot of the cool stories, a lot of people posting stuff on Facebook and Instagram and all that, but it's still even, but it does seem like, I don't know if everyone fully can appreciate a lot of the younger people in our business can fully appreciate what the comic strip um, was. And, and that's not me saying that it's not a great place still. Like, again, I, I don't know. I haven't really, I don't go to many shows there. I was at like a, a JFL. I, I was, I've probably been to the comic strip twice or three times in the last like eight or nine years. One of them was for an album taping and another one was for a, a just for laughs thing. But, um, but if you were to tell me, you know, at its, you know, in the early, you know, mid two thousands, late two thousands, there was no better place. Um, it was a special place. The room is dynamite. Um, when that room is full and pumping, uh, as someone who owns two clubs in the city and very proud of those two rooms, I, I do think our rooms are special, but the comic strip, when it's jumping and packed and the energy, when it, was, it is when it's it's a special. Sa- yeah. When it's a Saturday night there and it's packed to the brims and a joke hits, there's no better place, you know? And, and 
Yeah, I mean, so, you know, as we talk about this, it's like, you know, where is the comic strip going? Because I feel like it was really one of the best clubs, you know? And then it kind of, I felt like, didn't really, it wasn't finding itself, you know? Like, what what was the comic strip? I feel like it's been in limbo for a long time. And, you know, it's no, it, look, it's no secret that you and I have always been very keen on running the place. You know, because we want it to be what it can be, because that place can be the best room in the city. It really can. Um, and so, for, you know, uh, you know, we want to be delicate about how we talk about this stuff, you know, but um, I, I just think it needs to be to be said that that we, Emilio and I have nothing but really like respect for that place. And, and, you know, we're, I'm still sad about how everything went down with us, you know, and, and it was surprising in that way. I felt like it was a, it was a surprising way that things went down with us in the strip. Um, and in some ways, you know, Richie's passing, it makes you reflect on all this stuff, you know, it makes you reflect on, on what could have been and, and how things went down and, and, um, you know, in a lot of ways it's really sad, you know, um, yeah, but you know, so, I mean, I don't know. Like, but, but we've had good moments with them too. You know, we've kept in touch, and we we've you know we've checked in on them, and yeah, I know, know that I know that you and write, they checked in with us. So yeah, I mean, I know that you were you know continually always checking in with Richie and saying good things and all that kind of stuff. But you know, um, I don't know. It's just tough. I don't know what the future holds for that place. You know, and uh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, so. I mean, look, I hope every comedy club comes out of this, you know, hole. Um, uh, you know, we just lost Dangerfield, um, which is an institution. Um, you know, the creek is gone, which in its own right was an institution. Um, and, you know, the comic strip, again, it's just Richie was the comic strip. He was, he and the comic strip are synonymous with each other. And for a lot of people who don't know, you know, uh, again like the comic strip back in the day it was that that club it was like where you went to see what was exciting and what was new and 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 you know and i think a lot about you know how we've kind of modeled our club you know we do late night well late night was directly we were directly influenced by the late nights at the strip now we've altered how we do our late nights versus theirs but that without question is is a big part of you know what we saw at the comic strip and we adopted that you know we do our christmas parties i mean some of the most fun times of my life was you know the christmas parties at the strip those were so awesome yeah i mean everyone wonders like we do we do our christmas parties on sundays in the afternoon and our staff and everybody we make videos and we have fun performances and they're all terrible you know (laughs) what i mean and you can't hear the audio it's all fucked up And that's the strip, you know, and, and people are always like, why are you having, why are you having a Christmas party on Sunday in the afternoon? And we're like, because that's what the strip did. You know what I mean? Like we used to go to their parties and, and, and like you couldn't hear what was happening. And, but that was the thing, you know what I mean? And there was something special about that. And, and that's what I mean by like wanting to continue that brand of comedy club. Yes. You know what I mean? Like the brand of comedy club that is, that is that, that is a family. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And that is that is um, that is not just about the business, you know. 
that it's about hanging out with the comics. It's about being there late at night and and making friendships and and it's just it's it's um I don't know like again like Dangerfields. I mean that place was around for so long. Like when you say Amelia, you said earlier in the podcast, like what is or he, you know, he was one of the last of those breeds mm. of comedy club owners. What do you mean by that? Like, what, you know, what are examples? What is, you know, of people that are that breed? Yeah. What you- well, what I mean is, like, look, you know, it, you know, the first comedy club ever was, you know, the Improv, right? And that was Bud Friedman, and that opened, I believe, in the '60s. And you know, and now it's an Italian restaurant. Now it's an Italian. That's restaurant. what we don't want to see happen. Exactly. Don but, Giovanni's. But you have like exactly. But you have like you know. I think you had Bud Friedman, and then um, you know I'm blanking on the uh, the founder of Catch. I'm sorry, but you know those were different kind of clubs. When the Improv opened, I think the Improv, you know, first it wasn't a full fledged comedy club, and then you know they were doing like a lot of like poetry stuff, and like like they're doing some Broadway stuff. I mean, they were doing a lot of other things. Well, I think that was before it was the Improv, and then when he opened it as the Improv, it was the first like full on comedy club, right? So he's like your old Bud Friedman's like, you know, so you had the Bud Friedman and then then came along like the Mitzi Shore and then came along guys like Richie. And and I feel like that was a time when comedy really started to like evolve and kind of become a lot of how we know it as right. You know, the late night sets and the tonight shows and the comedy store and the comic strip and the improv and catch a rising star. And and I feel like that era you know, of it's almost like classic rock, right? They're like the classic rock of comedy, like the Led Zeppelins, if you will, and, and the fucking, you know, whatever of comedy. Um, and and then comes like a kind of a new breed of a club, you know, then the 80s come along and then, you know, well, I'm sorry, you put Manny, uh, Manny Dorman in there as well, you know, Gnome's father from the comedy. So like, those are like your old school classic comedy club owners. Like the, they're almost like the first wave of the comedy clubs. And, and you know Mitzi's gone, and you know Manny's gone, and I, I I believe Bud Friedman. I think Bud's not around anymore, so like I'm not sure, but but I I feel like you know of that era of like really a pioneer of comedy because you know the comic strip really was like the first full like it is like really was like the first like showcase club like the first committed showcase club where you had to set time like back in the day comics didn't have set times they would just show up and they would just perform when they got thrown on you know richie was really the first to implement like spot times and and i feel like you know of that era of the ones that started you know the 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 mount you know the really the 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 fucking the hall of fame of comics the carlins and the robin williams and the eddie murphys and the chris rocks I mean, that's all like the Mitzi Shores and guys like Richie Tankin. And I feel like Richie's kind of the last of that. And then you have different comedy club owners. You know, I think in New York, you know, next in line, you know, or kind of the next wave would be like the Al Martins, right? The Chris Mazzilli. Um, you know, those guys kind of took the mantle from the Richies of the world. And and then, and then you know, and then, then, then there goes, you know, owners like us. You know, and Bud then, Friedman's still alive, by the way. Is Bud still alive? At okay. least of what I'm looking at at Wikipedia, is he's 88. All right. Well, all right. But then you, but you know, but look, Tony Bevok was still alive too. You know, but I'm talking like like active owners. 
Yeah, like yeah. active, active owners. Exactly. So Richie was the guy that was still in the club every single night. Again, I have no idea if Bud's in th at the improv every night. You know, the improv now is like a conglomerate. And that's another cool thing, too, about the comic strip. You know, and the cool thing about Richie and the whole team there is I'm sure they had a zillion opportunities to branch out and open up other comic strips. You know, I'm sure they could have done stuff like that. You know, nowadays, everyone is trying to, like, create these super comedy clubs. Us, we're, we're one of those people. Or we're one of those groups trying to do that. What do you he, mean super comedy clubs? You know, like we're multiple. opening multiple clubs, yeah, different but brands, I, you know. Yeah, but I don't want to be a franchise. No, I hear Again, it. We're very protective of that. No, I understand that, but there was one comic strip. That's it. Well, there was one in Canada, wasn't there? But it was it's separate. Wasn't it's different. It? It's not the same ownership. Well, Amelia, let and me... they tried to do something on the west side, but then you know that that was actually not. Which, by the way, we filled. That was at the uh, the Triad Theater. Yeah, exactly. But that was Peter Shapiro. You know, that that was that was that. If anything, probably created a rift. But um, but you know, I, I just think he is of that that well, era. Well, let me ask you of that era. The the names that you you brought up the, the you know the Mitzies of the world and stuff. Would would you call them? That the pioneering group of owners, wouldn't you kind of call them the gatekeepers as well as the fact that comedians had to go through them to go to the next step? You know, you didn't get Carson unless Mitzi gave you the the you know the the golden ticket. You know, it's like nowadays it's it's DIY. It's do it yourself. Yeah. We don't you don't need anybody. I'm going to do it because of social media. I'll I'll do it myself. Whereas before, it's like you need you kind of need the voucher of that owner, and they were kind of the gatekeepers for a lot of comics to to make it. Yeah, I mean, look, comedy clubs back then, guys, wasn't like what it is today. Like, sure, we're going through you know, COVID aside, you know, there are a lot of comedy clubs in the country, and there still will be even after COVID decimates a lot of them. Um, but back then, I mean, a comedy club was very much a novelty thing. You know, it's not like there were comedy clubs everywhere. You know, so to have kind of the 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 uh, the ambition to say, hey, you know, we're going to make a full commitment to comedy and nurture comedians and make this a place of seven nights a week of comedy. And in the fashion of which the strip did it for so many years. Um, yeah. without question, he was a gatekeeper and 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 he was somebody uh, that place was a true home for comics. Now, now, you know, there is a big debate, you know, it's happening now, like how significant, you know, are comedy clubs and how important, you know, you can just do this yourself and do that yourself and you can be on YouTube and you can do on TikTok. I mean, look, most comics, real comics are going to tell you that no matter what happens in this industry, you need the comedy clubs. At the end of the day, you got to get up, you got to perform. Well, I as a comic, are you happy? Without a comedy club? Of course not. I mean, <laughs> the comedy club is your lifeblood. No, of You course. want the laughs. I mean, at the end of the day, the comic, is, it doesn't matter how much, I mean, it, obviously it's great to make money, but getting a laugh on the stage is the ultimate Yeah, that's, that's stand-up comedy. You know, I might, I might ruffle some feathers here, but that's stand-up comedy. There's a lot of different forms of comedy. There's a lot of different forms of stand-up comedy, but there's a lot of form. If you're popular on TikTok, great. I'm not hating on you. If you got millions of downloads and, and you, you can sell out you know, large venues. Cool. I'm all for it. You're not a stand-up comic. You're not a stand-up comic. You're, you're, you're a comedian. You're funny. You're talented. Whatever the hell you want to call yourself is fine, but you're not stand-up comic. A stand-up comic goes to comedy clubs and in a live room and that you will never, I don't care how popular, popular you are on YouTube or clubhouse or whatever the hell you do. That will never replace the feeling of a live comedy show in an intimate, poorly lit room 
where when the laughs hit, you will never ever that show will never be duplicated. There's no recording of it. It's just a live show where the comic is talking to that audience, and it will never happen again. And th- that will never be replaced. Now there's room for everybody else too. I'm not saying because you're popular in TikTok, get the hell out of here. But I'm just saying that's not stand-up comedy. But kind of going down a yeah. And listen, I think you got to pay your respects, you know, to whenever you know. Again, whenever you and it just feels everything feels. I was talking to James Madden about this last night. He's like everything. He he said you know Richie's passing. It just feels like kind of like the last straw and just. In, in, in just a whole new era now. Like, one, we're dealing with COVID, right? Who knows what things look like after this? I think we all believe there's going to be a big, big, a big comeback in comedy. But what does that really look like? I, I, I just think with everything that's happening and now with, with Richie's passing, it really does feel like, okay, there is kind of a, a changing of a guard, if you will, in our industry in terms of, all right, we, we have now really moved into a new stratosphere of what this is, what 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 is comedy going to yeah. be. Uh, but I, I am really grateful to have been able to uh, have access to someone who is kind of on the, uh, I, I do think, you know, the comic strip is on the Mount Rushmore of comedy clubs. And he is the head and the face of the comic strip. And I think he's right up there with Mitzi and, and, and the Bud Friedmans. Without question. You know, the comic strip to me, like you said, it was the CBGBs, man. It was it it was the rock and roll of comedy back then. It was where you saw it. Like Eddie, Eddie Murphy, you know, Eddie Murphy wasn't going to fly a lot of these other venues. It took a lot of bravery to, to put, you know, at the time, a, a young comic with what he was saying you know, on stage, yeah. you know, and Bob Wax, actually, when Eddie first moved, it came to the club, Bob was the one who was like, he kicked him out. He said he had an attitude problem. He was cocky. You know, he wasn't getting along. And Richie was the one that told him to come back. So you can tell Richie kind of, he got it. He understood like, hey, you, you take the good with the bad with some of this stuff and you try to nurture the talent and, and, and the art. And I think it's cool too, that they never moved, you know, like, like Caroline's. Caroline's used to be at South Street Seaport, and then it's in Midtown. Um, you know, the cellar. They they have the cellar, but then they've opened up other places. Even Owl's opened up other places. Like, you know, uh, the fact that it's always stayed on the Upper East Side, you know, in an area that most people wouldn't even think, you know, it's the Upper East Side. You know what I mean? It's kind of like this hoity-toity yeah. area, and there exists this, like, amazing institution of a venue, you know? Well, I, uh, I, think, I think it's fascinating that you brought up the – the idea of the passing of the guard and that it's actually something you talked with Mattern. Uh, and who's a better who's a better person to have that conversation with than the actual commissioner of comedy? And James Mattern has a podcast here on Paper House Network called The Commissioner of Comedy. But you know what? Don't take my word for it. Take it away, commish. Hey, babies. It is me, the self-appointed commissioner of comedy, James Mattern. I just want to tell you that every week I'll be wherever you listen to podcasts with my show, The Commissioner of Comedy. I've been doing this, babies, for almost 20 years, grinding up and down, and I'm here to convey it to you about the do's and don'ts of the comedy scene, the proper etiquette, the unwritten rules, if you will. Whether you're just a fan or you're a young buck starting out, a grizzled old vet, or just someone who wants to peek behind the curtain and see how the sausage gets made, tune into the podcast, The Commissioner of comedy this is what it's about it's only on paper house network and it's for you babies it's for you 
Thanks, Kamish. But, you know, moving on, we, we kind of talked about the legacy and wh- where is it going to go, and it is kind of just a giant question mark, but the self-reflective and, you know, we kind of talked on this, hit on this and like, what's our legacy? You know, what are we, what are we building and what's happening with COVID? Things are opening back up, maybe not for comedy clubs. It's everything's a big question mark still. And I know that we've all within this, in this show have felt a lot of frustration and I just kind of want to, you know, maybe touch on this hopefully without getting too off the handle. Uh, but you know, what's going on? Whatever happened to that save our stages act? Like what, what the hell happened with that? I, I feel like that fell apart. I'll let Scott Hank take this one. Well, I mean, look, I just, just full transparency. You started taking these pills for epilepsy, which I don't have, <laughs> by the way, I don't have epilepsy, it's but you I, take those pills. I have no, it's cause I have really bad migraines. Right. And, and, and I'm always trying to find new medicine. I took these fucking pills and these pills side <laughs> effects are anger <laughs> and hypothermia. So basically, I'm just cold and angry all the time now. More which is, so than normal. Right, which is what I was before. And hair loss and yeah. is one of the side effects, yeah. which is basically, this This is me in a pill. Yep. So I'm taking a pill it's that like the side effects took, took The side effects took place before you before even started, I even started taking, taking the pill. So now I'm taking them. And now I'm, you just I, have an I, excuse. I, I'm like superhero you Scott. Just, now you <laughs> just have a valid excuse for being a bald, cold prick. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now it's the pills. Um. So this stuff really gets my blood going because the Save Our Stages Act was, when was this passed? In December? December. It's now March. Okay. And we've had to to suck the cock of Schumer this whole time. Thank you so much for passing the bill. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, thank Chuck. You. And then That's we Chuck keep, Schumer, not you. Amy Schumer for those and, listening. And we keep getting emails saying, thank him. Put his name on the outside of your venue. But I got to be honest. We haven't gotten anything. Zero. Okay? And there's no talk about it. And so, you know, he hasn't saved any stage. You know, there has been no uh, stages saved. Now, that might change. You know, if I get that money in my bank account, yeah, then I'll be like, thank you. Thank you. Then I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll do it. You know and, what I mean? And, and Chuck, but that hasn't he happened. anything. I mean, anything. And, and, and that hasn't happened, you know? And, um, yeah, no, it's, it's extremely frustrating. And you know, what's frustrating about that too, is that, is that you can't take the PPP money. There's been a second round of PPP funding and you can't take that money if you're going to be doing save our stages. So a lot of the venues have decided to do save our stages, which means they haven't taken the funding for PPP, which leaves us in a dark hole. Hey, we have like, what, what are we supposed to do here? You know, so yes, it is extremely frustrating. The fact that you have to wait this long, like venues are closing, waiting three months and still sitting here with our thumbs in our asses. doesn't help anybody. I mean, like, so like try to explain a little bit, because like, for instance, when we get the the stimulus check, you know, that's kind of like, well, they're sending them out. Just keep an eye on it. And you're just kind of keeping an eye on it and you check and you check and then you finally get it. Is it like that in in a sense where it's like, hey, you're, it's coming. Just keep an eye on it. Or is it like, yeah, no, hey, we're going to do it. And then they just fall off the face of the no, earth. No, it's, it's you, 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 the application to apply for the grant, the Save Our Stages grant, um, isn't available. You can't apply yet. But they've said, hey, do all these things to get ready f- to apply. So you've had to fill out, I mean, Emilio does all the stupid shit. You have to fill out all the stuff, right, to get ready to apply, which we did. 
So we're all just sitting here ready to apply. You know what I mean? But it's it's just not happening. So do you think that it was all just uh, a ploy to appease you from no, from no, from no. like from because you know a lot no, of look. I don't. I do. I think it's going to happen at this stage. I, I uh, three months ago I would have been like, yeah, of course. Well, what happened? at this stage I'm like, what is this going to happen? Well, what, what happens mean? if they it's say, hey, happen. what happens? Well, what happens if they say, hey, well, you what can, does that mean? Though you can open. Does that mean that mean can they do that? Like, hey, well, now that you can open, there's no save our stages no, now. Now no, we're not gonna. No, not at all. The save our stages is based on uh, you know what happened of your 2019 revenue versus 2020. Mm-hmm. 2020 is done. It is what it is, and then you can also get more funding uh, based on the first quarter of 2021. So let's say we remain closed until uh, June, which is not going to happen. But let's just say that is the case. Um, well, then we will get any venue that is still closed will get even more money because then you'll compare your Q1 2021 versus your Q1, I believe, of 2019. And if you're or 2020, I think, or whatever, if you're still down, then you get you get money from that. So look, the saver stage is going to happen. The frustrations is is that it does seem like it's just been like forgotten because where everyone really is just waiting um, to see what the hell is going on. Now, are we sitting there? Like, am I personally sitting there looking at my computer every five seconds, waiting for the thumbs up? One, first of all, no. Um, I stopped doing that. I was doing that obsessively from last April. I'd say all the way until like November. Well, you're known to do that and. In- Ridiculous. Regardless, yes. but I stopped. I've, I've stopped waiting to you know for us to you know to to waiting for the news that we get to open. In my view, this is what our business is right now. It's running roof shows. It's doing stream shows. It's it's doing stuff outside the city until you know we either can reopen or until we decide that um you know it's stupid that we're not open and maybe we just try and open a day or two here and there and see what happens because. Quite frankly, it seems like at this point, um, one, our governor has more pressing issues to worry about, and two, um, places are opening. Like I know of many venues that are just going to open and sell. I mean, it, it's almost like blatantly public now that, oh, this is how you get around it. To say that you're selling tables and not tickets and have ambient this and that. Now, we have, for a very long time, um, we've resisted towards trying to go that route because we want to run our business the way we want to run our business. But at some point, you know, when there's 2,000 people at Mass Square Garden and when people can go shoot pool and when people can go to a cigar lounge and people can do escape rooms and go to a movie theater, it starts to feel like no one really cares anyway. So we might as well just try and do something. But to answer your question, Save Our Stages is going to happen. Who knows when? But to Scott's point, it's fucked up because there are a lot of venues that can't wait much longer. They just cannot wait. You know what I mean? Um so you take a place like the Creek in the Cave that left, you know, maybe if they were a little quicker with this, Rebecca would not have left. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe she would have gotten the funding to be able to stay in the city. Um, but but who knows? So By the way, per- she, she is opening example. in Austin, so we want to congratulate her on opening the creek down there in Austin. <clears throat> but go ahead, Scott. Congrats to Rebecca. Yeah, but that's a perfect example of 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 not doing things properly and and people vacating the city that don't need to you know that that business is going to another state you know and i'm sure that's just a microcosm of what's happening here you know is that new york has been turned into a dictatorship Hmm. i mean it really has um and um it's crazy 
It's fucking crazy, man. We live in crazy times. But, you know, the weather's going to get better, and, and we're entering the spring, and, and uh, you know, there's nothing... I mean, I, I just... Listen, how can you not have a more positive outlook than negative. There's three vaccines now out with the Johnson and Johnson. It seems like hospitalizations are going down. Texas today just announced, which I don't think any of us agree with to lift the mask mandate, which is stupid, but they're going to be hundred percent open. Um, you know, Connecticut, you know, these spaces that we have in Connecticut are all reopening. You know what I mean? Um, even Atlantic city now is going to be open at a higher capacity. So we're going to get there. It's just what it's just, What's it going to look like? How many clubs will be able will be standing? How much ve- money will be given to the venues? And, and how many customers are there to go to these? Exactly. Venues? Like, will people come back? I think they will. But a big part of this is tourism too. My what what makes me really sad? I talked to a friend of mine last night who was a doctor, and we always get in arguments over this. But I'm just like, can't the narrative be better? Like, I, I love Bill Maher. I was watching Bill Maher the other day, and he was talking about Fauci. And and dude, I. I I love Fauci. Like, you know, he is the leading epidemiologist. I can't say that word in in the world. But even Bill Maher was like, dude, do you have to be such a bummer? Like, do you always have to be a bummer? Can't we just like, can't we enjoy some of the wins? Well, I think they're scared of of doing that because then people will be like, hey, it's over. No, for sure. For sure. Listen, there's a, there's a, there's a doctor at uh, Hopkins. Okay. Which is one of the leading, you know, medical schools in the freaking world who was saying like by April, we should be good. You know, he's like, there's no reason not to think that by April we're good. Now, I think maybe that's a little too much of a rosy picture, but like, can't we just, again, this was Bill Maher. He was like, can't, do you have to be such a fucking downer all the time? Can't we have a different narrative? Can't yeah. we speak a little more positively? Does the world constantly have to be ending? Do we all have to abandon everything? And what concerns me is, is like, you know, like, I don't know, like how jaded will our staff be? How jaded will the customers be? You know, and, and are we going to be under some crazy microscope? Like you're not six feet apart. You're not this, you're not that. It's like, I don't know. It just seems, we don't know what this is going to look like basically. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point of, you know, negative versus positive. Everything has a spin and what spin do you want to give it? Look, and I, to Scott's point is you kind of have to almost scare people into doing the right thing because if you allow them to think, oh, hey, this is over, and then you drop your guard, and that's the last thing you want. However, you can spin it. It can be, look, I mean, here's a perfect example, Groundhog Day. Does he see his shadow or not? Six more weeks of winter, spring's right around the corner. Hate to break it to you, spoiler alert, it's the same goddamn time every year. Yeah. It's just how you spin it. Yeah. Six more weeks of winter. It's still six more weeks until spring, no matter how you cut it. Well, how do you spin it? Is this thing almost over? Hey, guys, it's almost over. We're almost there. It, the fin- I can see the end, the light at the end of the tunnel. There's the finish line. Let's. All we got to do is, come on, one more month of this, and we're out of it. Or it's like... Hey, dickheads! Don't get too don't get too comfortable. We're still in it. Just a reminder: we're still in it. You know how do you want to spin it? It's the same thing. It's the same message. Just how do you how do you present it? Yeah, so listen, I'm I, I'm I've I've resigned myself to the fact that COVID is not going away. Like it's just going to be like we got to get vaccinated, and there's still going to be people ordering get COVID. Yeah. It, but the but again, the point is, it's like at least we have it somewhat under control now. You know, and, and, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to compare it to the flu. It's not what I'm saying, but every, it's just natural to say like the flu exists. People get the flu. The hope, my hope is it just, we learn to un- accept the fact that, listen, we have it under control. There's vaccines. Um, be smart. Don't be stupid. But just how do we live our lives knowing that there is 
this virus and hopefully it doesn't become a pandemic anymore right i mean things stop becoming pandemics right don't they yeah they be, they become um <laughs> endemics is that what it is and an endemic yeah i yeah. think well i mean there's still to that point though that the spanish flu that strain that still exists do you know that tuberculosis is a pandemic yeah like currently it's it is a pandemic but that's in africa and the media doesn't care yeah right but i mean look let's not go crazy here COVID is horrible it's a thing it's terrible it's a thing but we do have to find a way to get back to or to 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 i don't want to say go back to normal i just want to find a way to be able to make the choices we need to make to um live a life you know we, we got to get back to living yeah and, and, and you know and again not to bring it back to uh i don't want to bring it back to like richie or anything but you know again i think about that and like we we're younger guys and we've figured out ways to sustain ourselves at least or, or at least stop some of the bleeding you know when you think of some of these other venues they just don't it's hard to do that you know it just is hard to do that so um i don't know what my point is in saying that but you know, I, I, you know, I've often thought to myself and I've talked to people about it, like, God, would I have rather this happen to us now? And, and it's not about us, but would it have been better if this happened when Scott and I were like in our sixties or seventies, or is it better that it's happening now? So at least we can like handle this straight on and, and, and figure it out. I, I don't know the answer to that. Part of me is like, man, couldn't we've had at least another 30 years of just growth and, I mean, the good thing is we've always been like, well, what if this happens? Are we going to go out of business? What if this happens? Like now we know full on you know what i mean like we can get through anything yeah you know, because I mean, you can say what if a global pandemic happens well it did happen you we know got I mean? through the, we got through the fire extinguisher and we thought how could anything be any worse how than could that? it be worse how <laughs> could it be worse than one saturday night of sold out shows getting abruptly canceled because a fire extinguisher went off well but for real I, I do think you know getting i do think that we will be stronger people i mean we will have more tools in our toolbox and a better understanding of how how to navigate tough times you know and i know for me personally like i'm gonna be more um i'm gonna be smarter about hey how do i spend my money (laughs) i mean that's probably not true but you know what i mean like you gotta think long term like okay how do i prepare myself for when 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 we're down you know and and if we can get through a, a, a being closed for a year or more then you know we can get through anything and really, this is validated for me, all the hard work we've all put in, everyone, you know, because there are a lot of times when we were doing, whether it was starting up another brand somewhere or whatever, I mean, it's not like we were making tons of money in a lot of these little projects that we do, you know, outside of New York Comedy Club. Initially, at least, some of the stuff has really become like very, very like good in terms of, you know, bringing in revenue. Some haven't, but you know, this validates all of that stuff that we've done because, you know, we, we've had to be very mobile and we've had to be able to create things out of thin air. And we, we've never stopped doing that. You know, it could have gotten very, we very easily could have been like, we own two clubs in the city. We don't need to do anything else for, I mean, again, you think about the strip, the strip had three owners that was open for over 45 years. 
Now, granted, you know, there was the managing element. So, you know, I don't know. I'm sure they're still getting checks from Eddie. I have no idea. I'm sure they are, right? But the reality is there was three owners that were able to make this, have their livelihoods. And granted, they did other stuff. I know Bob was a lawyer and I'm sure John, they owned whatever they did outside, but they had one club, right? For all that time. We're just two people, Scott. There's not three others or two others. And we could very easily just have sat in our heels and just been like, we have two clubs. We're good. You know, why do we need to keep doing all this other shit? But we don't. We have the ticketing and we got, you know, uh, partners in gym. And then we got Joe in Fairfield and, and you know, we got all this other stuff going on. And I, I do I do breathe a great uh, sigh of relief that we did all that because, one, it's been mentally healthy for us. Okay. Mentally, just being able to work on stuff, to be in touch with everyone, to 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 put on shows, whether we're making money or not. And the other element is it has helped financially to to stop the bleeding. There's no growth really. There actually is in Connecticut, but overall it's it's just been very, very good for us. So, you know, what I'm gonna take away from this is hey, don't ever get um too content, which we haven't. Continue to grow. And but don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put your eggs which in is one basket. Something we learned from the comic strip. Yeah. <laughs> no, for real. Yep. And and so yeah. Well, so. that kind of well that that's a perfect way to wrap it up there, Scott. And you know, the, I, I always still think the whole thing is this is all based off um the Connecticut Comedy Festival. That's that's the year round. That's the gift that keeps on giving year round here in the office. The Connecticut Comedy Festival. But listen, uh, that's going to be the show for today. Thank you for listening. I got to give a shout out to our sponsor, Silk City Hot Sauce. If you guys are hot sauce fans or just looking for any kind of flavor to add to your meals, check out SilkCityHotSauce.com. Use the code Comedy C O M E D Y for fifteen percent off your entire order. That's SilkCityHotSauce.com. Use the code comedy uh, that's gonna be it it for us thanks for listening make sure you are following the club on instagram and all the other social medias and when we finally open up the shows make sure you check out newyorkcomedyclub.com for all your tickets thanks for listening we'll talk to you next time thank you thank you